Well, fury is good. Fury is right. Fury is needed. Uh, many years ago, uh, when my parents lived in Tampa, Florida, uh, they invited my brothers and I to come out uh, to go to a Buccaneers game. And if you're not uh, knowing what that is, the Buccaneers is an NFL football team, and we had amazing seats. We had second row of the 50-yard line seats. It was just like, whoa, <laughs> everything is right here. Like, you're, you, you could almost touch some of the players. And I could tell you that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were playing, but I could not tell you who they were playing against uh, because something happened at that game that just took over the whole experience. When we were at this game, my whole family and I, I have three brothers and mom and dad, um, watching this game, sitting behind us, though, were three inebriated men. And these men uh, were just cursing like sailors, just oh, all the time, dropping all the bombs, all of them. And then they were constantly using their knees, not on purpose, but to hit us in the back of you know, our, our backs here. And so they'd be moving, and we'd just be kind of continuously throughout the game getting hit. And it came to a breaking point when uh, one of the men accidentally spilled his beer on my mom. And so my mom turns around and she says, we have three teenage boys here. Can you watch the language? And your knees are hitting us this whole game. And just for the love of God, please stop spilling your beer on us. This is ridiculous. You would think these men would say, oh, I am so sorry. Um, I can't believe I've done such a thing. May I pay for your tickets or something like that? No, 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 no. Uh, they're, they're inebriated, right? And so their response is like as if we've started World War III. And they've said like, are you kidding? We are at an NFL game. And so then they said, these words are okay. And they just listed off every cuss word they could think of. And my mom was like. And then it turned from just cussing in general to now insults at, directed at my mom. To the point where they then started calling her fat. And my, my brothers and I weren't particularly close at that age. But at that moment, there was a bonding element that happened of like, oh, no. And so at first it was like these three men against my mom and my, me and my brothers were like, oh, don't make a scene, you know. <laughs> at that moment, the three of us step in front of my mom, like locking arms. And my older brother is a fighter, particularly. Um, he said some words, I won't say. Um, there was, there was some, some light um, touches uh, exchanged back and forth. And then the security guards come down and trying to figure out what's happening. And all of the people said, it's these three guys, let them out. And so then they, they take the, these three guys out. Um, and the whole crowd cheers. Like, 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 it's like, who cares about this football game? Everyone just saw this. We're like, this is absurd, right? Now, what would you think if these three men did this to my mom and said this to my mom and I said nothing? What would you think? You would say something like, do you even love your mom? Like, you are a spineless coward, is what you would think. And I would say, you're right. Absolutely. Because true love, if it's true, gets furious. It gets angry 
when something threatens that which you love, right? If you do nothing about it, do you really love that person, that thing? There should be a passion and a heat to fight for someone. And so this morning, what I want us to talk about is a furious grace. And we're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the fury, the flame, and the fight. So the fury, the flame, and the fight. The fury. Now, let me just give us a quick little overview of where we've been, if you're new with us. Uh, if you guys ever heard of the Bible Project, there's this, uh, these helpful images and maps that makes complete sense to you, yes? You're like, oh, that's what, what's happened. Okay, cool. No, it's not. That's not helpful at all. But you should go watch the Bible Project videos. They're really helpful. They're really great. Um, but what I just want you to see is that there is a bigger arc of this story that's happening, that we're just in the very, very beginning of it, right? We are only five chapters into this book of Isaiah, and it, and it does go, it does fall along this arc. And as you can see, if you saw um, real quickly, some of the themes there of judgment and, and, and hope in the midst of that and exile. But the very first couple chapters here are just setting the scene of saying, who's who? What's the problem? And clearly it has something to do with Israel and Judah of who they are called to be and yet who they actually are. And chapter 5 really summarizes everything so far. So this is really the end of the introduction to Isaiah. And chapter 5 summarizes it, but it does it in the form of a song. And actually in the form of a love song. You may think of what's your favorite love song. Everyone sing it at once. No, don't do that. <laughs> um, you may be thinking of your favorite love song, and you're like, oh, beautiful. Uh, but this isn't that type of love song. This isn't like the Cure's love song. This is probably the one of the most tragic love songs you will ever hear. Because the intensity and fury of God's love could be life-giving joy if you experience it that way. But the intensity or fury of God's love could be utter terror if you experience it that way, depending on which end of that love you're on. And so chapter 5, verse 1 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. And so Isaiah's song of fury and love, um, it begins depicting a farmer. And it's this imagery that they would know very well, that many of them were farmers and farmed the, the grapes that the farmer here is doing. And so the farmer is doing all of this back-breaking work of, of tilling the soil, preparing the crop, the crop, getting the most high-quality plants. He's putting all these walls around his crop, trying to make sure that this, this plant thrives, and it produces some of the, gra the greatest grapes that they would know. But in verse 4, it says, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have already done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Or it could say only stinky fruit is really another way of seeing that. When I looked for good grapes, sweet grapes, why did it only yield bad, sour grapes? Grapes that make you revolt as if you brushed your teeth beforehand <laughs> and it has that, that taste there. Because, why is the Lord so angry? It's because he knows what this plant could be. He knows what it should be. He's, he, he says, I'm going to make these fresh grapes, the best ingredients. I'm going to put all of this painstaking work into, into this. And why I know what it could be, what it should be, and what I've invested into it to make it so. And yet it comes out making sour grapes. And it's making him furious. Because he's saying, that's not what I, I put the work in for. 
He hates the sourness that's produced. And what I want us to see is that the opposite of love, as many people have heard, is, is not hatred or fury. The opposite of love is apathy. Think of it this way. Like, if, if God truly hated the vineyard, he just wouldn't do anything about it, right? If you truly hated something, you actually don't invest any time into it. If God truly hated the vineyard, he would say, I don't care if it produces sour grapes. It's apathy. But that's not what God does here. God is, because he loves it so much, he's like, I've given it everything. I wanted it to, to thrive. I wanted it so much, so much that it hurts, that it's infuriating me. And I'm staying up late at night thinking about it. And so the results make it really, really a sad state of affairs. And in verse 7, it tells us that it's not actually talking about plants. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. That which God cultivates and cares for is his people. That's what he is pouring all of his efforts into. And when he looks at his people, he's looking for justice. That word for justice is mishpat. When he looks for justice, he gets bloodshed. And that word is mishpat. And so it's this, this poetic imagery of when I looked for mishpat, I got mishpat. He's trying to say, what I thought it was going to be, it's not, it, it, it falls so far short. And not only is it so, falling so far short because of the bloodshed, he then goes down this, this most, the most of this chapter is just listing all the ways that it is an infuriating God. The things that, that, that the people are revealing to show the, the thorns of the plants that they've become. And so what have the people have done? Well, let's just do a quick flyover of this. You just heard it read. But I would say the predominant theme you can see in this is the self-indulgence and the greed. Start in verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. And so Isaiah is accusing the people of becoming these land grabbers of wanting to possess everything up to a point to where no one could actually live on the land anymore. Of pushing people out. And of being so greedy with their, with their cares and with what they want that no one could even live on the land and at some point when they push everyone out they are now living all alone it gets worse they're building these huge mansions i don't think i have the verse up here but they're building these huge mansions that are so pretentious that it makes it sound like no one would even want to live in them they're so big and so elaborate and you would think oh this is i want to make this this huge four-story building that everyone would come into and no one wants to step foot into. They just become museums. And some of us know houses like this. And they live all alone. And then God, he mocks them. He mocks them in this passage. And also he does the same thing in Jeremiah twenty-two fifteen. He says, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Hmm. Maybe this is God saying, you feeling strong? You feeling like you're important now? You got all of this wood in your house, this, this, all this ways to, to dress it all up? Are you feeling like a king now? Like, 
He's saying you, by your greed, cannot stop amassing more and more to your own empire. You're revealing your own addiction and sadness. And so what is greed? Greed is the selfish desire for more. Greed is the selfish and excessive desire for more. Not just money, but more of anything, more of something. Greed is consumption out of control, that I can't stop wanting more and more and more. And so that, that's why I think this, this greed image de- describes the rest of this chapter. Verse 11, those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. And so not only are they greedy with their money and with their homes, they're greedy with how much they want to drink. And they're not talking about someone who has, has had a drink, but the first thing that they, wake, they think about when they wake up and that they think about all day long when they go to bed is all about getting drunk. Later in the passage, it talks about those who are heroes at mixing drinks. What an imagery there, right? That, that this is what you want to be known for is how you mix drinks. And it's just a sign of that they are only thinking of themselves. They're constantly thinking, what can I do to please myself, to have the next high, the next escape, the next pleasure? And so the fury of the Lord is coming out against greed and self-indulgence and now drunkenness. It comes out against cynicism. We're just going to come through these fast here. Where it's doubting God's actually at work in verses 18 and 19. In verse 20, um, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, saying how perverse it is for you to say something that is evil and say, no, that's good. Or say something that's good and call that evil. The things have flipped And then he's calling out social injustice. In verse 23, those who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. And so you can go back and list of all the different ways ways that makes God angry. But what I think the American church has a hard time seeing is the thread that is binding all of these together. That we have a tough time seeing how greed affects our view of social justice. That we, are, we, we have a tar- hard time seeing it, that, that, that the greed actually touches and actually influences whether or not we care about justice. Flip it another way, we could be said this way, there cannot be social justice until we deal with our constant desire for more. Like this is the plague of individualism that we live in here in America, that we all live for ourselves. Like what do I crave? What, what do I want? What, what pleases me? Without ever thinking, what does my brother need? What does my sister need? Our minds are so curved inward that it's only thinking about ourselves. And and the question of what do they need just sounds nonsensical to the self-indulgent mind, right? You ask someone else that, they're like, why do you think about them? Like, here's what I want. Because greed disempowers grace. Greed disempowers grace. It, it, It makes you not even want to give it. It takes all the power away from it because it's seeking to only look inward. And so we're going to go from the fury to the flame now, to the flame. Verse 25, therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. The Lord will not merely just abandon his people and let the other nations come upon them. The Lord's anger is actually burning against them. He's actually now going to assist in their destruction. 
He will take down the hedge that's protecting them. He will take down the wall. And as a result, the the vines will be unprotected from the animals. And then God is going to bring the flame. He's going to bring the flame to destroy the crops. And to me, the scariest part of this passage here is because I I feel like I can go with, okay, the Lord's not doing it. He's letting other nations do it. But the scariest part of this passage here is in verse 26. In verse 26, it says, he lifts up the banner for the distant nations saying, open for business. To the distant nations, he whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Right? God's whistling. Come. Come get them. I'm done with Israel and Judah. And so what we need to see here is the utter urgency of this passage. And yes, the stakes are high for Israel because Assyria is coming to take them off into captivity. But the stakes are even higher for you and me here today in 2022. Because it's not that we're being threatened to be able to take it into captivity. There's an eternal destination that is at stake here. And this is not just like the Old Testament God and we're like, okay, good, I'm glad we have Jesus. He's much happier and nicer. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 25, 41. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal flame, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And what we see here is that our greed is killing us. That our selfishness is killing us. And so, Mosaic, there may be some here today who feel like you may have just been going through the motions. You've made the affirmations, and you've said it in your head, but it's not ever trickled down to the heart and to our actions. And have actually followed through with these things, of living, like we don't live any different than non-believers. Is that true? May today's warning of the vineyard wake us up to the Lord's plans Like Isaiah and Jesus are clear of that the judgment is waiting and it's coming. But I need to be careful when we talk about the Lord's judgment. A few years back when when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, I heard many pastors or theologians come out and say that the reason God's judgment came upon this city was because of the sexual sins of the city. And I want us to be careful with comments like that because yes the Lord is furious in his grace and his love for his people he wants better for us but the difference between Isaiah's time here and what God has written down for us and what we see here in our modern day is in the Bible we're given the reason something happened we're given the explanation but here and today we're not told that this is the reason that this hurricane came and completely destroyed this city, right? You could say, well, maybe the hurricane came because the city is eight feet below sea level, and it keeps happening. Or you could say, yes, let's, let's attribute it to, to God's fury and love for the, for the people there. But maybe it's not about the, the sexual promiscuity of the people. Maybe it's about the greed of its leaders and the corruption there. Or maybe it's because of global warming that we've all played a part in, right? <laughs> like we could, we could go down the list of different things that we could say, well, here's what, maybe why and how this happened. I just think we need to go to the point where we're saying, I don't know. When we hear of something like that and someone says, why did God allow this to happen or how did this happen? I just think we need to go to that 
place where we say, we are finite. I don't know. And lament that it ever happened. It's lamentable. And so what I, what I want us to see here, though, is in spite of the flame and the fury, this passage, I'll, I'll grant it, this passage seems almost completely devoid of hope. If you read this passage in your own personal quiet time, you're like, whoa. Right? It, it almost feels like it's completely devoid of hope. But, and so I want to give you guys a, a couple hints of hope in the midst of this passage that I think are really important because I think every single person here today needs a hint of hope needs something after a hard week or after a hard day. And so let me give you three hints of hope that are in this passage here. The first one, Isaiah keeps saying the word woe. Now you might say, that doesn't feel like a great hint of hope. <laughs> woe. Uh, woe to you all the time. He says it seven times of these woes. But the word woe doesn't just, doesn't just denounce sin. It laments sin. Like the word woe, is, is, it's full of sorrow and regret and saying, I hate that this is happening to you. Like this is the tone of this passage, that the Lord is not giddy to bring judgment. He's heartbroken. And anytime we see the Lord's judgment and God's wrath, it always comes out of heartbreak that this is happening to his people. The second hint of hope is that the prophecy is given at all. Like why would God give the prophecy... And say, here's your destruction if he actually wants them to be destroyed. Why, need to, why, why say what you're going to do rather than just do it? Because the Lord is hoping some type of change will happen, right? He's hoping some type of repentance might happen in the midst of this. Third hint of hope is the power of stories and songs. I think stories and songs disarm us, right? If someone came to you and said, hey, I've got a lot of problems. we got to talk. You're like, okay. <laughs> Defenses are up. What do we need to talk about? And you're thinking of all the ways to defend yourself, right? You, that, that's probably happened to you, right? Um, but when a story comes and someone says, hey, let me tell you a story about this. It, it's very disarming. You're watching a movie or reading a book, and you're like, you can see how you find yourself in that. It's disarming. This is what happens when, when Nathan uh, confronts David. He doesn't come to him direct. He tells him a story, right? He tells him a story about this poor man and his one lamb. And so why, why does God, if his mind is set on the destruction of his people, deliver this message in the form of a song? You ever wonder that? Like, why, why is he giving it to them in the form of a song? He wants to warn them. He ultimately wants them to change. Like, even if he knows they won't, he's trying to tell them in the form of a song so that they will actually listen to it. This is like if you're telling an addict, here's your ultimate end. I want you to not go there, but this is where it's going to go if you, don't, if you don't change. There's a desire for change here. There's a, there's a prayer for another route to be taken, which means there is always hope. There is always hope. Yes, you can quench your own desire for that hope. You can burn your own taste buds off for that hope. But this means that even in the darkest times, even when there seems like there's no hope at all, even when the sun failed to shine, and when the Savior was dead in the ground, there was still hope. Come on, somebody. <laughs> there was still hope because he comes up from the ground. And we know that to be true. That even in the darkest times, there is still hope. 
And some of you guys may be in a place where you're like, I don't have any way out from this dark time. There is still hope in this. Or you may have said, I, I'm going to give up on this person. There is still hope. There is still hope in these times that the gospel actually does these miracles. And God still does miracles today. Amen? Amen. God is at work. And if, he, if he's at work to reach you with how great you are, <laughs> right, he can reach anyone. God is at work and he will bring people back to life. And I do believe that God still performs miracles today. And what's most amazing is that the gospel is the story not of God abandoning his people and saying, with apathy saying, just, just let them burn. God steps into the story after seeing what humanity has done. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it all. I'm going to give everything. There is so much love outpouring for his, for his people with this furious grace because he loves you that much. And so we go from the flame, to the fury, to the fight. What I want you to receive this morning is a, is a furious grace. God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. You heard that before? That God loves you just the way that you are, but in his furious grace for you, he loves you too much to leave you where you are. Like, we're... We're talking about a grace that actually changes you. Not overnight, but it changes you to actually want to change. Some of you say, I don't even want to change. God can do that. God can work with that. <laughs> Today, we have some young people who are going to come forward for baptism. And I pray that when they come forward for baptism, that they are, they, they are coming to, to receive a grace that not only forgives them, but a grace that actually transforms them. I pray we all receive that grace because forgiveness without transformation, is there really forgiveness? If you say, I want to be forgiven, but I don't want to change, then what are you actually saying I want, I want forgiveness for? Why not just continue going on in, the, in our pathways of sin that we were in? No, I want forgiveness and I want to change. I don't want to be addicted to this sin anymore, right? But God has given you all the resources you need for this fight, this fight of grace, of working that grace in you. He's giving you himself, the Holy Spirit, working in your heart, and it enables you to fight. And so in the understatement of the century, grace changes things, right? Grace actually changes things. John the Baptist told us how to prepare for the way of the Lord in Matthew 3. He tells us, by bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. And so if you actually repent, then these fruits will come. By bearing fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and joy and self-control. And I wish I had them all memorized, right? <laughs> that we actually bear these fruits. And that's what repentance looks like. And what God is not saying is just believe. It's believe. Believe that God is actually going to do something with you. His grace is transforming and it has a transforming power and it changes us radically and it's a fight. Oh, it's a fight. Because the monsters we're fighting, we're fighting, let me just give you two of them. We're fighting the monster of greed, right? We're fighting, and boy, is that a monster, right? We're fighting the monster of, of selfish individualism or self-indulgence, and that monster has latched its hooks into our bodies, and it is a fight to work against that monster. And to win this fight, we can't just avoid certain sins and say, I'll just go on with my merry way and just avoid those bad things. No, because that monster is going to try to taint all of the good things that you're doing and make them 
selfishly, inwardly, working outward. So as you may be going out and doing works of justice, it's really to be seen. It's really to, to have this view of yourself. Even as you may give money, you might make sure everyone knows how you're giving money, right? So we need to, we need to work out these things together. And so let me give you two practical ways to fight these monsters. Let's fight our greed with generosity, and let's fight our self-indulgence with justice. Fight our greed with generosity and our self-indulgence with justice. And what I mean by that is, usually when we talk about generosity, we think, oh boy, and you may have heard, felt this earlier, like, oh, this is the Sunday, they're going to talk about money. <laughs> like, uh, why don't I invite my friends to this service today? <laughs> that's too limited a view of generosity, if that's all we think about. If we think, when we think generosity, all we think about is money, I think that's too limited a view like, because generous people give more than their money, right? Generous people find millions of ways to give. And I think one of the best things that we can do to imitate Jesus is to be generous. What a, what a picture that is of the gospel. Because generosity reflects the love of Christ in a way that says, it's not about me and I'm outward facing. I'm looking out at you. Generosity pushes our, our eyes off of ourselves in that greed of looking inward and looks outward at, at one another. Generous people go out of their way to make people feel comfortable in their own home. Generous people make sure that when you come over for dinner, they find out, are you allergic to anything? Because their mind isn't always on themselves, they're asking about you. And then the conversations aren't always, let me tell you about my story. It's really, it's a genuine interest in the other. This is what generosity looks like. It's asking about your story, your dreams, your fears, your favorite things. Right? And so why do we do this? Because Jesus was so generous with us, right? That Jesus poured out everything for us and his mind was fixated on you and me with that furious grace. And it, a lack of generosity is a refusal to acknowledge that the assets that you have are not really yours. So you fight our greed and disbelief with generosity. And so the more we can train ourselves to willingly look outwards, we actually train ourselves to do that. We actually train our children to be generous. We train the people around us. And the people you see that are generous, it's contagious. You're like, wow, they're doing that? I guess we can do that. <laughs> I guess it's allowed. And so it makes us, yes, it does help us to, to give our money away as well to, to local nonprofits and charities and, yes, the church. But it, it's not just limited to that. And so the, the more we give, the more we break the talons of greed. And so we fight our, our greed with generosity, but we also fight our self-indulgence with justice. If a believer doesn't care about the poor, it reveals at best that they don't understand the grace that they've experienced. At worst, it reveals that they don't understand grace at all and they may not be a believer. Because if you've received the furious love of Christ, and if you've received that furious love of Christ, and then you go out and you see that God's children, which are now your brothers and sisters, that are, are hurting and in need, and you have no mind for it, how can the love of Christ be in you? How can we just go on and, and be apathetic towards that? We have a grace that changes us. Changes the way we think about these people. Changes the way we use our money, the way we vote, the way we think about the most vulnerable. If you look down at the poor and you stay aloof from their suffering, 
you've not really understood or experienced God's grace. Why? Because God didn't look down at you and stay aloof from your suffering. God cares about you enough to see it and, and to not ignore your pains. And so why would we ignore the pains of our very own community right here in Waco? we got to look into this. And God does not want us to just give mere pennies and a couple bucks to, to some people, but for us to ponder long and hard about the systems that brought this person to that place. And to think about, you know, what can we do to improve their entire situation, to move beyond relief, but to rehabilitation? Like, how did things get this way? How has redlining played a part? How has inhumane wages played a part? How has predatory loans played a part? But no matter how dark it gets, when we start looking into these dark places, we still have to remember that there is still hope that God is still at work and that God is doing some beautiful, beautiful things. He still does miracles because he can break your addiction to self. He can break your addiction to more and to find true contentment and satisfaction in him. Amen. Some of y'all have experienced that. We have a God who is madly and furiously in love with his people. And because he's so in love with you, he won't let you. He says, I won't let you go down that path alone. I'm going to intervene. And so a furious grace forgives and it transforms. Some of us need that transforming power very, very much today. And I pray that our community experiences that transforming power that pushes us outside of ourselves. And so what areas in your life do you need that transforming power? What areas in your life do you need to be able to take your eyes off of yourself and to look outwards? How do we need to break those talons of greed and self-indulgence? I want us to think about that so that we would be a community marked by our generosity in the ways that we, we do give, but the ways that we do care and look outward. Let me pray for us.